It is Wednesday, May 19th, 2021. This is Messiah Matters number 344. Trying not to let people redefine terms. My name is Caleb Hegg. And trying to understand Caleb is my full-time job. I'm Rob Van <laughs> Truth. <laughs> I'm bad at this. What's going on, brother? It's only been eight years. I know, right? Hey, had a great Pentecost. Yeah. That was awesome. You know, I was talking to someone actually in the last couple of days, even on Shavuot itself, they're like, yeah, those, those people are, yeah, there's like this referring to another, other groups of people that are, have a different day of uh, Pentecost. It's like, it's funny that it just kind of comes, I think three times from completely different angles that's come up recently about, yeah, uh, other people are not celebrating on this day. It's like, oh, well, what can you do? Uh, I suppose that I should probably uh, let you people, do you boo. Let let people know what I was talking about in the intro. Okay, so uh, here's the thing: is that as everyone knows, the conversation on this show for the past eight years continues to go back to titles and uh, what we should call ourselves. So you know, uh, back for those who have been with us long enough, you'll remember that uh, I used to wear a keeper all the time. I used to wear yarmulke all the time. I took that off about, I don't know, two and a half years ago, maybe maybe three years ago. And I did that for a very specific reason. And um, one of the reasons why was because I, I, I mean, I think identity is something that I've been looking for in terms of how do I identify myself in Christ? And then who, you know, how does that look? You know, so there's, there's a lot of questions that have gone on. And I think one of the reasons why is because my father found his identity uh, in the 80s in, uh, when he found out he was Jewish, he found... Uh, by blood, he found his identity in the Messianic synagogue, um, and that connected him to his his heritage and, and those kind of things. Well, that was never really the case for me, um, and so you know I've kind of gone down some of the same roads I think my father went down. Well, I've been you know, and even in our intro, you know, what do we call ourselves? Well, I call myself a non-denominational Christian. Well, recently. Uh, a beloved brother in the Lord, Jeff Young, uh, coined a phrase, or I found out that he coined a phrase, and the phrase is pronomian Christianity. This is brilliant, a brilliant term. And actually, another brother in the Lord who uh, I've met before and Rob has met before, Joshua Inslee, he wrote an article on pronomian Christianity. And so yesterday, I created a, a video on Growing a Messiah, on the Growing a Messiah YouTube channel. You can go check it out. Uh, if you just search Growing a Messiah, it's the, the top one on the channel right now, I think. Um, it's basically what's the difference between Hebrew roots, Messianic, and pronomian Christianity. And so I attempted to define these terms. And uh, and so there's been a good amount of discussion on Facebook and uh, whatnot about this video. And one person uh, has said, Basically, in my video, I say pro- pronomian Christianity holds to the foundational tenets of Christianity, which would be things like Trinitarian doctrine, a 66-book canon, uh, salvation and faith alone. I mean, the list could go on in terms of, you know, we could even put maybe the five solas in there, sola scriptura, sola gratia. Sola, okay, so anyway, one of, the pers- one, of the, one of the people who shared my video said, I wish that he wouldn't have said that, uh, you know, try to redefine it with Trinitarian theology in there. Because Trinitarian theology is not explicit in the Bible. And so I've been having this debate. It's interesting because uh, Jeff Young, Inslee, and myself have attempted to define this term. And we already have people trying to redefine this term to take out the core tenets of Christianity. 
Um, and yeah, that's, you know, we've actually, Jeff and Josh and myself have all kind of been chatting back and forth this, this that's morning. That's the, the fate of every label. Exactly. Of every it term. Yeah. As, as uh, your father, president of Tor Resource, likes to say, Words don't have meaning. Words do not have meaning. Meaning, meaning has, has words. words. Yeah. And this is important too. I've been thinking about this in terms just to kind of hijack Caleb's uh Please, please hijack. Here. Please hijack. How before it says the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, right? That's Yeshua. But we know that the scriptures are a kind of incarnation, right? It's in other words that the scriptures are inspired by the Holy spirit. That means God chose human language to, to reveal himself. And in choosing language, for example, the word Elohim, God chose the word Elohim to describe himself, even though he knew that the nations of the world already used this word, right? It's a word used in in Aramaic and other, you know, Canaanite languages to refer to other things other than the creator, like to, to idols. So what did God do? Did God come down and invent new language and say, I have to give you a whole bunch of new language? Or did he use the language that people already had right? and then provide by the Holy Spirit? He gave, you know, Moses and the prophets and inspired like King David to use what they're being uh, uh, moved by the Holy Spirit, but they're using words and symbols that are already in this world. They're right. not coining new words. Um, and so this is interesting, but, but, the, but it, what I guess I'm trying to say is God knows God has the same problem. He's like, man, they keep... <laughs> They keep taking my, you know, right. my scriptures. I've given them the scriptures, and they keep taking these words and and making them mean something. They don't, and that's the that's the crisis of the garden. Because right. once the woman looks at the tree and sees that it is good, she's now being her her worldview is being determined by the serpent, not by God. Because God says God has already defined what is good. And they're not supposed to eat that from that tree. But when she starts saying, oh, it's good, that's a problem. And that's why in Isaiah it says, woe to those who call good evil and, and evil good and light darkness and darkness light. Um, it's th controlling the meaning is why we have the councils, right? The Like we talked about last week, it's not the, the councils do, are, are not scripture. They're fallible, like we talked about last week. Caleb, if I remember right, you quoted... Luther, or, or, or mentioned Luther in saying, look, the, the councils aren't, uh, aren't inspired by the Holy Spirit. However, they, are, they do reflect uh, careful, godly men thinking as a team in teams and trying to sharpen doctrine for the sake of communicating the Word of God clearly. And we got to take that seriously. And of course, I think we, we brought up, someone said, well, what about something like as obvious as the Sabbath? If they say, and then someone said the Council of Laodicea, and it's like, okay, well, obviously we don't agree with that. We, we're, they're fallible. Uh, if, it's, if, any, if any council advocates the breaking of the commandments of God, then we must, we must protest. We must right. protest that. Actually, so on that note, because uh, last week I I had two books. One of them I'd only read a couple of pages of, and I said, 
I would recommend this book from what I've read so far. That book was called Truly Human, Truly Divine. And um, that book is, it's in, I've now read over half the book. It's, uh, it's a really good book in terms of laying out the descriptions of what's going on, why they did all these things, so on and so forth. The one thing, the one thing that I would tell you about that book that is a hindrance, in my opinion. A warning. I, a warning. There is maybe in the in the first half of the book, I have read one footnote. So the, the person who wrote this book is very well learned, has obviously done a lot of research, has, uh, you know, given their well, life. Man, where's the footnote? <laughs> but they don't cite any sources. And so it's more of a informational book with no... You know, you're not going to you're not going to build a library off this book. OK, gotcha. But with that said, it, I, uh, I've read a lot of books on um, church history and the councils and stuff like that. And I can tell that, I mean, obviously, the information that is being given for the most part from what I can tell is is on the money. Um, yeah. So nice. Anyway. So long story short, control of back to your you coin a term because you're like, we need a clarifying term here. And it's hot off the press. And then you have, you know, it's already can be adopted and then reshaped outside of your control. So what do you do? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, should we go on? Should we go on? I think we should go on. Um, Rob and I got together yesterday. We were like, what are we going to talk about? And I don't think we actually still know what we're going to talk about, but it's okay. Uh, we have a couple of things, some brand new, some from a long time ago. Uh, let's read one that's from a long time ago. Mark wrote in, this is months ago, he wrote and he said, It seems to me that many evangelical commentaries have to separate the Old Testament from the New Testament in regards to the psalmist praising of the law. Yeah, how, could, <laughs> how could right. a spirit-filled Paul warn of ongoing, or no, I'm sorry, how could a spirit-filled Paul warn of going back under the law while a spirit-filled psalmist writes of the blessings, joy, and glory that is to be found in in keeping the law? I am aware of the phrase works of the law found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. One might ask why the psalmist in one in 119 did not write a lament about the impossibility of keeping the law instead of singing its praises and benefits. That's a great question for antinomian. <laughs> Yet people who have created a, a, a straw man, which I think of Paul, um, Rome, I would just direct, if this person, now what, what's not clear, does this person tongue in cheek? Or is this person saying, yeah, I really think Paul might not belong. I, w- I would send them to Romans 7, where he says, I just pulled it up right at the end. He says, uh, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, right? Um, the law is good. The law is spiritual, right? All this stuff is in Romans 7. Yeah. By the, I, I, by the, in Rome, you know, by the law is the knowledge of sin. So, uh, we've yeah. Said, so we've said it numerous times, or at least I have, that the law without grace is not a good thing. And this is exactly what Paul's getting at. If you come to the law and you don't have faith in Christ, guess what? You are under you're con- the con- you're condemned to death. You're under the condemnation of the law. This is not a good thing. You have put yourself under the law. 
if you are not coming to the law through through Christ. The psalmist, however, I would argue that David and the and the psalm the the writers of the Psalms have come to faith in the in the coming Messiah. It's the Holy Spirit. They're yeah. inspired at scripture. So they yeah. see the so the law is this gorgeous, wonderful, beautiful thing because it is the law code of the kingdom. We are kingdom citizens and therefore the law is is good and, and wonderful and great. <clears throat> Even the same psalm. Uh, is it Psalm 119? Open my eyes and I will behold the, the glories of your Torah. Open your open my eyes. Why is he saying open my eyes? Because the natural man will not see the glory, right? That's this is great too, because this week I have the the privilege of recording the weekly uh, three-year cycle Torah portion for Torah Resource Institute. Um, and it's it's this year in the three-year cycle, this Shabbat is Deuteronomy 9. And Deuteronomy 9 is, okay, you're going to enter in this land. Don't say in your heart, it's because of my righteousness that the Lord is bringing me in here. It's not because of your righteousness. It's because of the wickedness of the people that were in there. I'm getting rid of them. And it's because of my promise to the patriarchs. You're rather stiff-necked. And, and Moses rehearses then and says, look, don't forget, you guys made a golden calf at Mount Horeb. And God was, you know, his wrath, he would have been right to destroy you. So don't come in here saying it's because of my righteousness. It's not. It's because of a covenantal promise that has nothing to do with you. So Paul would be reading that right along with us. And against any of those Jewish groups in the first century, Pharisees, Sadducees, Essene, that thought righteousness was somehow that something we can work and attain, and then uh, God's going to bless us because of how how righteous we are. Right. So when we talk about the doctrine of righteousness by faith, we're saying, we're agreeing with Deuteronomy 9, that abiding that Israel's endurance, ability to even the remnant persevere in the covenant is because of God's promise to Abraham, ultimately. That's why in Malachi it says, I change not. Right. Otherwise, you would, otherwise, Israel, you'd be destroyed. Okay, wait, hang on just a sec, because you actually just went into our next comment. Hey, cool. This is a perfect segue, and actually, I named this episode "Does God Change?" And the reason why is because I didn't even know that. Vic- okay, seriously, Victoria wrote. Did in, I know that? No, did you I, did not I, know that, Victoria, because off. I made it up right before we came on air. And and I'm being a good boy and staying off the uh, the Facebook or the uh, YouTube right now. Okay, here you go. Victoria writes, and she says, "Recently, I was speaking to a person about dispensationalism." He asked me first who Adam and Eve's children married. My, married. My response was a guess that they married other children belonging to Adam and Eve since the command was to be fruitful and multiply, that is to fill the earth. He responded with agreement but suggested God changed because it wasn't until later that God gives the command not to lay with your siblings, close, uh, close relatives, and so on. I don't believe God changed because his word says he doesn't change. But how does one respond to this question? I know he is going to to say, if we speak again, that this is evidence of dispensationalism, God governing differently during different dispensations. Okay, this is a good, this is a fantastic question. I've made this mistake before. The idea that God doesn't change does not mean that the application of 
his commands do not or the or the way that a command is is um, uh, carried out doesn't change. And um, a perfect example of this is going to be <clears throat> the tabernacle, <clears throat> right? When Israel, excuse me, hang on. When Israel is wandering in the um, in the desert, they are told that they are to bring their their sacrifices to the um, to the opening of the tent of meeting. This is the place that they are supposed to sacrifice. Once they come to the land, that gets changed into a building after a while, and now that's the place where God puts His heart and His eyes. His eyes and His heart are at the temple. So the um, and you know what? Honestly, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie. This this kind of throws a wrench in some of the you know Torah observant uh, arguments for some people. Um, ultimately, the fact is is that uh, God lives inside of time and outside of time, right? But God acts within time, and so the fact of the matter is is that we have uh, we have the tabernacle for a time on earth, and then it changes. Now that doesn't mean that the sacrificial system has gone away. It doesn't mean that uh, you know it, what happens is we have a, a moving on into something else. Do you want to talk about that? Nope. <laughs> okay. Uh, the 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 reason there's there's so many times where God deals with us according to His forbearing. It, it reminds me. Is it Acts seventeen, Caleb? You or you've been there more recent more recently than I have. I think. Where Paul says, you know, you know, the nations have been idolaters, right? But God has God kind of winked at this, meaning there's going to be a time when the message goes out and it's time to repent. Okay, so you're like, well, why why would God allow all these nations of the world to be idolaters for so long before He finally empowered the ecclesia with the ruach hakodesh to go out and preach the gospel to all the nations? We, we it's just because it's his why did he wait to send Yeshua when he did why didn't he send Yeshua right after Abraham right or why didn't he bring Yeshua into the world right after Noah right or Adam and Eve there's, right after the there, fall. yeah there's questions that we that we don't know that God had in his forbearance had had a time that has to do with the horizon of what his plan is and that's why for example when Cain killed Abel, he didn't just kill Cain. He didn't kill Cain, but but what would have happened in the uh, in in the wilderness under you know after receiving the lot Sinai if someone you know grabbed a stone and and murdered somebody else? What would they have done with that guy? They wouldn't have just sent him away. He would have been put to death. So you, we're just like, well, why that? And then but then you can even go to King David. Why did God? not just wipe out King David when, when David clearly was an adulterer and a murderer and a schemer. Why didn't God just, the law of Moses would say Moses, that's why, you know, he sends the prophet Nathaniel to David, says, and gives the little parable of the man who had a little ewe lamb and he went and stole other sheep to feed people. And David's like, Ben Mavit first, which means death penalty, son of death. And then he said fourfold restitution, right? All of a sudden, it's like Nathan's like, yeah, you're the guy. So why is it that we have God's perfect law revealed, but yet we can look back and we go, wow, what's, 
what is this difference where God decides by to to meet out punishment either differently or in a way that we don't expect and that's tied to why did the wicked prosper at times yeah so so one of the other things I see all these as tied to the same problem Right. One of the other things that we can say is that when it comes to the idea of the exact example that Victoria has given, the idea of Noah's children um, procreating with their close relatives, well, we're talking about different people here. So, for, for instance, um, God has different commands for different people. I'll give, you, I'll, give you example, I'll give you two examples. One from the Torah, one from the Apostolic Scriptures. The one in the Torah is this. In the Torah... Uh, uh, someone in the priestly family is not allowed to marry someone outside of the priestly family. You have to marry, marry within the Cohen family. The Levites have to marry Levites, right? Okay, that does not apply well, to they me. they have to... Okay, go ahead. That does not apply to me. In other words, uh, if, if I can't be a priest, so those laws don't apply to me either. In other words, there's a difference because I am not, I'm not a priest. I'm not from that line. In the same way, I'm not a woman... And in the apostolic scriptures, we uh, it says that a, a woman is supposed to submit to her husband and a husband is supposed to love his wife. Well, I'm not a woman, so I'm not supposed to submit to my husband because I don't have a husband and I'm not a woman. So different people have different laws. It's not a blanket law for everyone. So the idea that Noah's, that, that uh, I'm sorry, that uh, Adam and Eve's children could have a law that is different for me, that we see that. The initial command is be fruitful and multiply right. and fill the earth. That's the initial command. So they're uh, they're being obedient to to that command. Here, but this is that you get into. Is it John Walton? Who's the guy? Lost story of Genesis. Lost story of you know. He's one of these guys that says yeah, and he's a, a you know a supposed Christian professor who says yeah, there was no real historic Adam. There was no real Adam. So really the idea, so the problem of who who did Abel marry, who did Cain marry, is really, you're looking at a myth. And really there was all sorts of people that were already on the planet. And what Genesis is doing is just telling a story. Uh, it's like a myth of origins of where we came from, but it's no there was no historical Adam. Which is like you got to be kidding me! Like this is a this guy's still allowed at the ETS, you know, like that there is no historical Adam because then the next question is, well, did Yeshua believe there was an Adam? Well, Luke seemed Luke traced, you know, Yeshua all the way back to Adam, right? And in, in Luke, what Luke chapter chapter three, Paul believed there was an Adam. So then you have to if you if you accept that idea. Oh, it's just a myth, and that's really not a valid question because they merit because there was all sorts of people in the world uh, through evolution or how whatever. We're not no, we Bible doesn't tell us uh, they just married, and and so they weren't fit, they weren't real uh, really from the same you know brothers right, and sisters right. sibling they weren't siblings. But then it's like well then okay so if did Jesus believe that there was a historical Adam? Did Paul Paul mentions Adam? Right. Did he think that there was a historical Adam? And then if, if so then are Paul and Jesus, you are know, and wrong? those, I, the reason I mentioned Paul aside from Yeshua is because they both mention Adam. Right. Uh, James, 
James does not mention Adam, for example. So we got to go to ones that we can look in the scripture and say, yeah, here they mention Adam. Do you think they thought it was a myth? Uh, so that's a big problem for someone who claims to have an evangelical worldview, in my, in my opinion. Okay, so this is a great conversation. We can keep going on with this. But the re- I want to say two things. First of all, the reason that dispensationalism is wrong is because it's not scriptural. And there are some great people who have dealt with this um, before. And actually in the chat room, who was it? Somebody said pink. Yeah. Um, sorry, I don't. Yeah, pink uh, wrote a great book on dispensationalism. Um, oh, Arthur Pink, probably. Arthur Pink, yeah. And then um, also we got a super chat. We got a super chat from Nope Thank You, and they actually requested something, so here we go. Uh, they say this. They say, Caleb's father has some great thoughts on God and change in his theology proper lectures. So if anybody wants to go check those out, and actually you can you can purchase the single audio lectures as well instead of doing the whole package if you want to. I see that. That's on tour. Nice shout out. Yeah. And they say uh, uh, that jingle that sounds like a happy Yiddish singing man making yada, yada, dada, dada sounds. And please tell me what it is called. Thank you. That is, um, well, yeah, that guy is a Russian guy. And uh, I don't know. We just call it self-centered because we've put it to other stuff. Let's take a listen to it. Why do you hate the Rob and Caleb show? Honestly, <laughs> I think they're vain, stupid, and incredibly self-centered. Thank you. Nope. Thank you. Uh, we appreciate the super chat. That is, uh, that rates at the top of all time, my fa- all time favorite custom clips. And, yeah. and that's dated because that's Rob and Caleb's show, that's which right. is what, three or four, like three, four years ago? Uh, no, yeah. episode 200. We, I think we did 200 episodes that's as right. Rob and Caleb. Yeah. And so we're at three something now. We're at 340. So, today was 344. This is the Yeah. So that was 144 episodes. episodes. <gasps> 144. 12 times 12. It's pretty amazing, man. It is pretty amazing. By the way, um, so. In the chat room, somebody asks, what lectures? It's Theology Proper, and uh, Michael has dropped in the link to the class on um, on Torah Resource Institute. You can also go to Torah Resource, just the, the store. Theology Proper is in there, and you can um, you can grab just single audios from, the, from that, or you can buy the whole package. Um, yeah. All right. Should we go on? Should we move sure. on? Thank, thanks for the good question. Yeah, that was a great question. All right, let's move on. Let's see here. Thanks for the great question. Um, so actually, I want to get this one out of here too, and then we'll move on to one more. So this one has been in my in my uh, show notes for, I don't know, I don't know, probably six months. Laura writes, stuck on the death penalty questions. Example. Okay, now this is a little bit longer, but still, let's try to stick with her here on this. Christians get mad when people say they are homophobic or transphobic. The term is used as a fear or dislike of alt-lifestyle people. This would also include the perceived call to violence of such individuals. 
The death sentence judgment for breaking laws of sexual immorality and sexual abominations are for all people. Yet while unbelievers are under the law, only God is the judge of them, and therefore we are not called to execute justice in that case. 1 Corinthians 5, 12 through 13, my understanding. But once someone comes to Messiah, they are now called to repent and abandon fleshly corruption. Ephesians 4, uh, 5, 3 through 7. If someone is still struggling with this, for instance, um, same-sex attraction or something like that, Paul tells us to not eat or associate with them and put them away from your midst. 1 Corinthians 5, 11 through 13, there isn't a call for any further action to take place, i.e. the death sentence, unless you take his use of this phrase uh, to mimic the Torah's use, Okay, which was a call to, de- to uh, death sentence. But I believe in another episode, Caleb said this passage just meant to shun them from the community. Yeah. So question. Is there really any threat or call to violence? It seems to me this continued sexual immorality behavior shows they are actually not God's people and not truly a Messiah, so they are left to God's justice and not for us to deal with. Okay, ultimately the question is, Should we? are we pushing a death penalty for people in sexual, uh, sexually immoral situations? The answer to this is, I think that uh, the idea that the death penalty is is done away with is not correct. Paul is talking in to the Corinthians. If Paul found a, a Corinthian who was a homosexual or uh, something of the like, or just caught in sexual immorality in general, and and he said let's let's stone him, and picked up stones and killed that person, he would have been executed by Rome. He did not have the uh, legal authority to carry out the. Uh, the the punishment, first of all. Second of all, if he would have done that in Corinth, Paul would have been executed according to the Torah as well because he is not a judge and he is not a priest and he can't rule on those things. The person would have to be taken to the authority within Israel if they were a believing and Torah-observant nation, which Israel is not currently. And therefore, Paul didn't have the ability or the means to carry out the, the Torah as prescribed. The point is, is that you they know, can still preach the what the punishment is, like right. how grave a sin it is, according to the revealed word of God. That is a reality. Just Paul's inability or our inability to to see that in a in a righteous government environment does not mean that God has changed his viewpoint or lightened up. And when it says that the Messiah will come back and he will rule with a rod of iron and the Torah will go forth from Jerusalem, what does that mean? Do you think that his law will be established then and that that the truth of, you know, that that his, that the punishment for crimes will be carried out? In other words, if Torah was actually being kept within the nation of Israel, then would the death penalty actually apply? And I think that the answer is yes. But our culture, our culture gets us to think that, oh, everybody's good. Right. And so no matter what, if they have an alternative lifestyle, they're really a good person and you shouldn't judge them because God likes people who are good and they're not out killing puppies. They're not out destroying property. They're good people. They're helping little old ladies across the street, Right. And so what our big society then has created these alternative moral universes that in, if you inhabit that world, you kind of look around and you go, oh yeah, everybody is good. 
Everybody is good. That's not the message of the prophets or the law, the law or the prophets. Jeremiah, is, is it Jeremiah 17? The heart is twisted and wicked above all. Who can know it? And even, you know, Isaiah in chapter six, when he has the vision of the, of the Lord in the temple and he hears the seraphim, holy, holy, holy. He doesn't oh yeah. He's like, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of an unclean lip, people of unclean lips. Like, I'm done. I'm done for. And this is Isaiah. So if there's a righteous man on the on the planet, it's probably Isaiah at that time. And so understanding depravity is a big part of this. The only reason any of us have hope is because of new creation life in Messiah, in resurrected Messiah, who per- he took on himself. He purchased us by his own blood, it says, not accounting our sin to us. So the, the problem is not that, oh, some people in the wor- world get it and they're righteous and other people are wicked and they don't get it. That's not it. And the, the other ex- explanation, well, everybody in their heart is good and you just have religion that goes around and then tries to judge everybody. That's not right either. The true biblical theology is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it is redemption by grace, by what, by who, how awesome Yeshua is and what he's, that's the, that's the difference maker, rescuing people from darkness. That's the different difference maker. Yeah. I mean, the, the, uh, the idea, Paul is writing to a community in the diaspora, first of all. Second of all, Israel is still under Roman rule. Even even in the temple, why do you think that they had to... Um, Send them to Pilate, yeah. Yeah, they sent them to Pilate. Because, yeah, exactly. So um, the idea... Because they, they, they knew that if they executed somebody, as a, attempting to sell it as a legal decision, Rome would have... Exactly, yeah, and, and, but this speaks into our own communities today. If somebody who... You know, we've talked about what would we do if certain people with certain lifestyles came to our church. Well, the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, we hope that the the uh, time that they would be there, they would hear the gospel. But ultimately, one of the leaders would have to sit down and say, I'm sorry, your lifestyle does not accord with a biblical, uh, you know, with following Christ. And therefore, you know, this isn't unless you repent and turn, you know, and this is ultimately what what uh, what Paul is saying. If you have somebody in the community who's living in a lifestyle that is is defined by sin, this is always you know uh, Rosaria Butterfield has uh, has talked about the idea of people who who live a homosexual lifestyle or uh, don't necessarily live one but identify as gay Christians. Well, why would you identify by sin? That would be like uh, a man saying like, well. I'm uh, addicted to pornography Christian, or I'm a, you know, like you don't define yourself by sin. We are renewed by the gospel. We're made new by by Christ. We are new creations. And so the uh, the idea is, is that, uh, you know, as people come into the community, we hope that they hear the gospel and they have a change of heart if they are living contrary to it. Um, or we hope that they've already had a change of heart and they come in and we can steer them in the right direction to live unto Christ. The fact of the matter is, is that, I mean, these sins, LGBTQ sins, are are just that. They are sins. But uh, one of the things that I think that people in the church today have kind of 
turn a blind eye to is the idea of fornication of people who are not married. You know, when you have a, a man and a woman who are, are attempting to live a lifestyle as if they are married, guess what? We need to hold a line on that too. This is, you know, so in other words, living a life that defines you as a sinner, you know, and I would say this for, for this doesn't say that we become perfectionists. We're not perfectionists. But the idea is that we are always trying to beat down and kill the flesh. And if we have sin in our lives that continues to define us as that, you know, being a liar, there's a difference between lying and being a liar. Being a liar is someone, in my opinion, and, and maybe this is my own definition, is someone who is defined by the fact that they lie all the time. I can see you want to say something. Go for it, Rob. No, no. I mean, like people who you don't trust anymore, right? You don't trust what they say because there's a, you know, a history. Yeah. And and so that's tough, too, because, you know, because then just like if someone says, oh, no, I'm a changed person, you know, there's still like how trust is rebuilt, you know, when someone has violated it so often. And that's that's another issue. But yeah. Yeah. Somebody asked what the uh, what the definition of abomination is. Yeah, I mean, I something that is abhorrent. To well, God. that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, I, and that's a really good question. Eva uh, uh, is the Hebrew word, but we have it in uh, like Leviticus eleven, for example. There's certain things, or or maybe Deuteronomy 15, fourteen, and when it's talking about food, you know, those things are an abomination. Don't eat those things. But it's the same word used. Remember when Joseph is in Egypt and he's all decked out as Egyptian. The brothers come, he's still in his disguise. Right. And he sets them up to eat, but it says the Egyptians would not eat with the Hebrews because it was an abomination to them, to the Egyptians. Right. So the idea of abomination, there's what God considers an abomination. And then there's things that man considers an abomination. And so, and the Torah gives us examples of both. That specific passage there where it's it's the, an abomination to the Egyptians to eat with Hebrews. Whereas God, that, that's not a problem for the Lord, obviously. Good right. question. Again, it shows you that, that we have to look at context, right? The meaning has, has words. Yeah, exactly. Let's go back. I want to I want to tackle another one here. Raquel says, I had a question regarding the terminology church. In a video with Wretched Radio, John MacArthur makes the distinction that the church is not Israel. He says that the church of God and the people of Israel are two separate things. According to some in the Hebrew Roots movement, the church is Israel, and there is no such thing as the church of Christ. I'm honestly confused because I've heard some people argue this replacement theology or anti-Semitism, but I am not sure. Thank you for your help. Shalom. Okay, this is a great question. And this is ultimately we've talked a lot on this show about what uh, we have termed enlargement theology. I think that on this one, MacArthur's uh, somewhat wrong. I think that there I think that MacArthur and I would I, I can't speak for MacArthur and I can't I haven't even seen the video so it would be hard for me to even comment on that but in the line of of this kind of thought that I've seen from other people what I can say is that this comes from the idea that Israel is non-believing and that the church is believing in this respect then yes there is a distinction however the word uh, ecclesia which is what the English 
Bibles translate as church, is used for Israel within the Tanakh. So Israel is called the Ecclesia. So that's number one. Number two is that uh, there has always been and will always be a believing remnant within Israel. And I believe that anyone who becomes a covenant member through faith in Christ attaches themselves to the people of Israel, thus enlarging Israel. They don't replace it. They enlarge it. So the ecclesia that is spoken of as Israel in the Tanakh is enlarged within the apostolic scriptures, the New Testament. And they and now this gets a little dicey in terms of what do we mean by becomes part of Israel or enlarges Israel. I don't believe that physical or ethnic uh, has it has anything to do with physical or ethnic um, identity necessarily, but rather with covenant inclusion. And that's what I believe the people of Israel are, is a covenant people of God. And therefore, I would disagree with if this is an accurate representation of MacArthur and his, and his words, which uh, I highly, I've gotten flack for this, I highly respect MacArthur. I, I have benefited from his teachings and from uh, his ministry immensely. Um, but this is one of the places that I would definitely disagree. I think that, uh, I think that the, the modern-day believing, or I shouldn't even say modern-day, anyone who believes in Christ after the resurrection enlarges Israel and becomes part of the covenant people of God and can therefore identify themselves as attached to Israel and or some might just say part of Israel. What would you say? Well, I would, you know, coming fresh off Acts 1 and 2, having read it for Pentecost the other day, um, during the counting of Omer, right? 40 days and 40 nights, Yeshua is appearing to his disciples, teaching them about the kingdom of God. And when it comes to the day of their, his ascension, he, they asked him, Lord, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And when they say that, they see him as the king of Israel. And they see themselves as being part of ruling over Israel. So if you pause just at this moment, at the ascension, and as described in Acts chapter 1, and then you look at Peter's speech in Acts chapter 2, when it's Shavuot, and, and, and you have Jews from all over the world are all there. They're all there on the same day, by the way. They knew what day it was. Um, and the Holy Spirit knew what day it was. They all, <laughs> footnote, um, it's all this men of Israel, right? They're cut to the heart. And they say, what do we do? After they hear the preaching, he says, repent, repent, and, and be baptized in the name of the King of Israel. Basically, right. I'm paraphrasing. But it's, it is, this is true Israel in the eyes of what Yeshua is telling his disciples. He says, it's not for you to know yet. You have to be my, in terms of the timing, right now, you need to go Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, which is going to give you some grief. So you got to learn how to preach because you got to go to people who believe in the Torah but reject the Davidic line. So you got to go to them and 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 show them that the Davidic line and the prophets is true. And they're going to have some resistance there. And then you're going to go further. People with even less cultural background than the Samaritans, you're going to go to the corners of the world. Right. But never is there any flinch away from Yeshua being king of Israel. And so... When I think of expanded Israel, I mean the kingdom under Yeshua's domain in the in eschatological sense. 
today, you say, well, who's Israel today? Well, there's the nation of Israel and they're, you know, as a, as a state, the state of Israel, does that define Israel? You know, do you have to live? But even then there's Israelis that are Arabs. There's Muslim Israelis. There's Christian Israelis. There's Druze Israelis. There's Baha'i Israelis. So, and then even within the observant, you have nationalist, you know, religious Jews, you have ultra-Orthodox who reject the state, right? You have all this. So, so it's a tough, it's a, it's a tough topic because of the slipperiness of the terms. I see the uh, modern state of Israel as a whole uh, falling under the category of Israel within, uh, well, within the Torah and within the the wayward Israel, right? They follow after the Baals. They don't. They they don't have a heart for God. Um, they even the many of the religious Jews have not uh, found the Messiah, and therefore, I mean, obviously now once again there is a remnant. So I, but the nation as a whole of Israel has rejected Christ, and in many cases has rejected God altogether. And because of this, I see Israel as still wayward. They're still under. They're still in the uh, essentially the exile form of Israel. And uh, in that respect, in that respect, I would agree <clears throat> with MacArthur that the church is not that Israel. However, we can never forget that God chose Israel and that there's always a believing remnant. And this is vital to this conversation. And so God did not make a new people. He didn't make new people who were who were different than the old people that he had chosen. He didn't he didn't ball up Israel and throw them behind his back and say I'm done with these people now. They rejected the Messiah. No, there is always a remnant of people within Israel that believe and have true faith and are justified before God through the Messiah Yeshua and this uh, the people who now attach themselves to Israel through the Holy Spirit and through faith in the Messiah attach themselves to that remnant. And that, in my opinion, is, I mean, I, I don't really want to use the word true Israel, but that is the that is the Israel that is not going to be cut off. Right. In, in, in the mm-hmm. analogy of the tree and the root being the Abrahamic covenant, which I believe it's the Abrahamic covenant. Well, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through Christ's death on the cross. Well, those who do not believe are cut off from that, and they are they are cut off from the branches. And so, uh, but the the Gentiles are grafted into that through faith in the Messiah. So uh, that's how I see it. This ties what well, one last note because we're so close to Pentecost is traditionally the story of Ruth is read and talked about. And Ruth is a Moabitess. And even at the end of the book of Ruth, right, she's still called Ruth the Moabitess. And why is that? It's not because she still is a Moabitess. It means that she is from the nations and is is grafted in. And she remembers where she came from. Because remembering where you came from is how you know God's mercy and grace, is remembering that you were a slave, remembering that you were a stranger, remembering that you were from a different nation. And so that memory has to be retained. Otherwise, how how can it be fulfilled? All the nations of the world will be blessed in your seed, unless there's 
a memory of those who were coming from the nations that, that I was here, I was in darkness, I was, you know, an idolater. Ruth or, or Rahab the harlot, right? She's not still a harlot, but the idea is, is where she was from Jericho, where she came from is part of the transform the story of how God takes uh, people that are the least you'd expect and draws them to himself. And that is one of the main, you know, beautiful stories in, in the scriptures. So Lee in the chat room says that's not what MacArthur means, the the definition that I'm and I agree with I agree with Lee. I don't I think that what MacArthur means if once again if that is which a, one? What? Which one's not? What he the means. idea that uh, that uh, Israel is wayward and and not following after the Messiah, and therefore the church is separate from that. That's not his what what MacArthur means. If the if the representation of MacArthur's comment is accurate, which I think we would actually need to see that comment, like I'd need to actually see the video to uh, be able to comment specifically on MacArthur's belief. But I agree with Lee. I don't think that, uh, I think that, that MacArthur most likely believes that uh, Israel is separate from, from the church in the most straightforward sense, if that makes sense. Hmm. Okay. So Um, then a, so then a person, so did Paul, did Paul and all the apostles cease being Israel? You know, my it's, my grandmother, who was a staunch uh, Baptist woman her entire life, loved the Lord very much, uh, was instrumental in bringing my father to Christ, uh, and you know, of blessed memory. I I I really uh, respect my grandmother, but I remember the conversations when my father was coming to Torah. We would go up to their house in Everett, and I remember the conversations. And my dad said to her one time, I I remember this fairly vividly, um, my dad said to her, Mom, you're Jewish by blood. You're Jewish. And she said, No, Timothy, I am not, because I became a Christian, and God has changed my blood. In other words... When you become a Christian, there's it's almost the reverse of what's going on in Colossians when and in Galatians. When you become a Christian, uh, you know it's it, you reverse from Judy. You're no longer a Jew. You are now a Christian. And my grandmother, this was not anti-Semitic in my grandmother's thought p- pattern at all. Right, that, she had been taught to think this way. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a hatred of the Jews. It was a fact that she had come to Christ, and the Jews are unbelievers. I'm a believer. So I, I think that there is some of that kind of mentality within, you know, within that generation. MacArthur, I think, is in his 80s. I think MacArthur is 84 or something like that. So he's a little bit younger than my, my uh, grandparents were, um, but only a couple years. So there might be some of that there, too. I don't, once again, I don't want to speak for MacArthur. Uh, I, I just don't want to do that. So I would, need to, I would need to investigate that. But I think that there is that kind of mentality among people um, even today, that you know, the idea of ethnically changing status, uh, whether and we see this in Judaism too, right? If a person converts to to Judaism, they are no longer a Gentile; they are a Jew. So, all right, it's a little. We're going to cut it a little bit short. We're going to cut it about seven minutes short. <sighs> Heaven forbid! But we've done longer episodes recently, so it'll it'll make up. Um, yeah, uh, send us. 
questions, comments. We haven't even given out the way that people can get a hold of us. Uh, 253-465-3205, 253-465-3205. That's our comment line. Go ahead and give that a call. You can talk about topics on that. Um, CHEG at TorahResource.com. It's CHEG at TorahResource.com. Uh, that's where you can send emails. By the way, I got to tell you, I've been working with somebody who is creating, somebody sa- called us, sang a j- jingle that they had come <laughs> up with for our for our for our comment line sang a, a jingle okay then somebody else said hey do you need help with a jingle and i said check this out this guy sang a jingle you know and and sent it to me can you make this into a song and so this person is uh is is creating a legit jingle that's awesome. It's it's really good. It's good. <laughs> Thank you guys and gals wherever involved with that. That's pretty awesome. It is I mean, awesome. I want to don't let me I let me just hear the final with everybody else. So I have no So prior yeah, knowledge. he he sent me he sent me the original draft and he was like, "What do you think?" And I was like, "I think it needs to be faster." And he was like, "Yeah, I'm going to change the key too." I was like, "Okay, good." So then he just emailed me yesterday he said, "I got one other guy one other thing uh, project I got to do first. I'll send it to you next week. I was like, okay, not a problem. And of course, don't forget to subscribe. If you are new to our channel, please subscribe to it. Uh, That way you'll never miss anything. Hit the subscribe button and that little bell. All right. It's been fun. It's been real. It's been real fun. And uh, we hope to do it again next week. We hope that this conversation has done at least one thing. That is to glorify our great God and Savior Yeshua, the Messiah. Why? Because Messiah matters. 